This podcast is sponsored by PNR Publishing. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast to hear about Leland Riken's highly anticipated new book, 40 Favorite Hymns for the Christian Year, available now at prpbooks.com. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. You are listening to Mortification of Spin. My name is Todd Pruitt, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Carl Truman. Now, as a much-loved and influential member of big evangelicalism, I, of course, have in my hands an advanced reader copy of a new book by my co-host, Carl Truman. It is an advanced reader copy because the actual book has not dropped yet, but being a much-loved and influential member of big evangelicalism, I have a copy earlier. It's even stamped on front, advanced reader copy. I cannot tell you, Carl, how important this makes me feel, or or rather how it affirms how how important I actually am. And uh, the title of the book is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution by Carl Truman. I also want to add this, Carl, before I actually get to you, um, that it is also stamped on my advanced reader copy, uh, not for resale. And I can tell you that's not just an instruction. That is a metaphysical reality. I have not been able to give this thing away. Um, much less sell it. And so I, I still have it with me. Well, I'm, ho- me. I'm hoping that you buy a real copy when it gets published <laughs> because, frankly, I need the royalties. So. Um, well, Carl, I mean, we some of us have known this book has been coming for a while because you began doing the research on it several years ago. Um, and the only thing that's happened since then is the need to address this topic has increased, it seems, exponentially. We thought things were bad just a few years ago, but uh, the, the, uh, the, the need for good historical and uh, Christian thought applied to the issue of personhood, particularly as it pertains to matters of the sexual revolution. Uh, the need for this sort of thing has done nothing but increase exponentially. Uh, Just, you know, several years ago, we we thought, how much worse is it going to get? Well, it gets worse, doesn't it? It certainly does. I mean, I start uh, one of the early chapters or sections of the book, I have that little quotation from King Lear about as long Mm -hmm. as you can say this is the worst, it is not the worst. Right. Yeah, there's, there's always something around the corner. And I think that what we've seen in the last few years is, uh, well, in some ways, it's not as bad as we thought it might be. That uh, Obergefell versus Hodges 2015, there was a lot of catastrophizing 
in the, the sort of Christian media surrounding that judgment. We expected our religious freedoms to be stripped from us in very short order. Mm. And that hasn't happened. So there is a sense in which uh, the revolution on one side has perhaps not proceeded quite as, as rapidly as, as it might have done. Perhaps, you know, the Trump presidency has, has stalled or slowed mm -hmm. things down a little bit. I don't think it's changed the direction of the overall right. flow. On the other hand, uh, it's hard to believe now that, you know, Obergefell versus Hodges was only five years ago because so much seems to have happened. Caitlyn Jenner burst onto the scene. Transgenderism has become uh, uh, a huge issue, uh, mainstreamed in the media. You know, even programs on the television about teenage transgender people uh, becoming popular. Uh, schools passing bathroom policies relative to uh, transgender individuals. So there's a sense in which on some levels things seem to have slowed down. On another level, that the broader culture seems to be a runaway train now. Right on matters of sexual identity and presumably the legislation and the, the enforced culture will catch up with that sooner or later. Right. So Carl, with this um, book, which, which you began to really research in earnest several years ago when you were um, a part of the James Madison um, fellowship there at, uh, at, at Princeton, you were a fellow um, there for a year and, and we're really researching this. It, it's, it's taken the form of some lectures in various places um, and, and now, of course, we, we have the book, which is supposed to drop in November, I believe. Towards the end of November, around about November. November 22nd, I think. Okay. Yeah. Now, in, in the introduction, you, you kind of sketch the landscape for us. And a, a couple of things you say is that, that what we're seeing in terms of the sexual revolution and in terms of, of, of transgenderism and, and the gender chaos it's connected to our, our metaphysical assumptions. It's connected to this issue of selfhood. Now, I'm not going to ask you to just unpack that because that's what the whole book is in, in, in a way. But I wonder if, if you could just kind of briefly sketch a little bit about what you mean by the fact that this is challenging our metaphysical assumptions. Sure. Because, because this is not just an issue of philosophy, but, but the things that they are encountering in their everyday life where this sexual revolution and the gender chaos is meeting them at the workplace and putting pressure upon them in their relationships and in their work um, actually is, is a deeply rooted philosophy here. And, and it touches on metaphysics. And so we're all, whether we know it or not, we're all having to, to wrestle with the metaphysics of this issue. So sketch that out a little bit. Yeah, well, a prime motivation for the book was, was my conviction that a lot of Christians have been caught uh, off guard mm -hmm. by particularly the arrival of transgenderism as a major uh, cultural and political issue. As I said, it seemed, you know, 2015, Obergefell versus Hodges seems a lifetime away at this point, given what's right. happened since then. And I became convinced as I was researching this issue that the tendency is that we, we are mesmerized by the phenomena of the moment. So we tend to focus on what's happening before our eyes. Rarely do we step back and try to set these things in broader cultural or historical context. And failure to do that, of course, does mean that the sexual revolution, 
culminating in the, in the current transgender moment seems to have happened very rapidly and indeed seems to be happening with increasing speed. It's, it's not just that it's happened fast since the 60s. It seems to be happening faster and faster and faster before our very eyes. There seems to be a rapid unraveling that's going on. And I think the reason why we've been caught off guard by that is this failure to, to see that actually what we're witnessing in the sexual revolution is simply the outworking of things that have been laid down in our culture, socially, culturally, philosophically, for, for a long, long time. And you, you raise the metaphysical question. Well, when you think about transgenderism, it, it, it's, it makes a very interesting metaphysical assumption. It assumes that our bodies are ultimately not definitive of who we are. It makes the assumption that uh, the mind, the psychology, the inner life, that which goes on between our ears, is ultimately definitive of who we are, such that if my mind is convinced that I'm a woman, even though my body might tell me I'm a man, we're to prioritize the mind over the body at that point. And that's a metaphysical assumption. Right. Now, that assumption only gains plausibility when the culture as a whole already buys into a prioritization of mind over body. Uh, it's not that transgenderism appears out of nowhere. Uh, in a sense, yes, it's, it's suddenly a bigger issue than it's ever been, but it's also playing on metaphysical themes. In some ways, you can trace back to Descartes in the 17th century, where Descartes develops this mind-body dualism, where really the only thing we can be certain about are incremental things, our thought, our doubt. You know, it's, it's, I, think, it's, I think, therefore, I am. Yeah, it's the fact that in doubting everything, Descartes realizes he's thinking and therefore must exist that allows him to be certain about something. Well, nothing, I doubt, could be further from Descartes' mind than right. you know, Bruce Jenner. <laughs> but there is a path that leads from Descartes to Bruce Jenner. Descartes sets the agenda. Uh, and so part of the story I tell is very much the story of the prioritizing of uh, the internal and psychological as definitive of, of what I take it to be a self. I, I explain the self uh, uh, early in the book and say, you know, our sense of who we are, that's our selfhood. And my sense and your sense of who we are, is, it's really a psychological one. So that allows me to sort of you know, make another connection that I think is very important for Christians to make, and that we have to be careful that we don't engage in the, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men. Jesus tells us that's a bad attitude to have. Yeah. But there's a sense in which we are all implicated in this psychologically constructed self-culture. Right. And I think it's only when we realize that we realize the depth of the problem and also we can cultivate a certain amount of humility as we seek to address it. And you, and you make the point early on that the sexual revolution is more a piece of the larger self-revolution. And so I, I would imagine then that we're, we're going to have a hard time gaining ground in terms of influence if we, if we reduce... Uh, the, 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 the current gender chaos to simply a matter of gender, not realizing that actually it, it's a piece of the larger battle of what it means to be a person. And that that's where we've got to really speak to. If, if we want to have an influence to, to, to push back against the gender chaos, and again, we do this not because we're, quote, culture warriors, but because we're Christians. 
and gender chaos is, is an affront to God and really bad for our neighbor. That's why we do this. But, but the point is, is that if, if, if we're only looking at this as a, a battle over gender ideology, then we're probably going to miss uh, the, the, the target. Is, would, would you say that's accurate? Yes. I mean, there, I, I, there are two things I could say in response to that. One, I don't think there was anything inevitable about psychological man, as I, as I call him in the book, borrowing from Philip Reeve, this, this sort of expressive individual. I don't think there was anything inevitable about expressive individualism ultimately settling on sexuality and gender as a means of, of expression. There's, you, know, you have to trace the history to understand, well, why does sex, why does sexual desire, why does gender, gender identity come to dominate the discussion? It's quite possible to have a psychologically constructed understanding of the self that, that doesn't use the sexual idiom. And that really leads to the second point I would make, and that's that you, know, you could ban homosexuality, you could make transgenderism illegal, you could legislate these things so they're criminalized. You could get rid of homosexuality in society. If like, in theory, let's do a mind experiment. Let's say it goes completely. It doesn't get rid of the underlying issue of expressive individualism, which I think in many ways is a kind of idolatry of the self and will simply manifest itself in another way. We happen to have it manifested in a sexual way for reasons related to the way our culture develops. Yeah. But expressive individualism, this idea that I am most me inside my head and the name of the game is for me to express outwardly that which I feel inwardly, mm -hmm. that doesn't go away. Right. It, it, no matter how you deal with the specific aspects of sexuality right. in our culture. And so would I be out of line then by tracing this out in terms of just playing off of what you said earlier about Jesus's, you know, parable in that the warning of, of the self-righteous man saying, I, I thank God that I'm not like this publican and sinner. So, so as we in our churches look with alarm and justifiably so at the gender chaos, um, we, we'd also better look with equal alarm because it represents the same kind of category of errors, our desire and our demand as Christians to make um, worship a reflection of me, to make sure that the preacher in his preaching um, is, is reflecting me. And if he doesn't do that, or if the worship doesn't reflect me, then I'll go to the church that does a better job of doing that. W would you say that there's kind of a same universe of errors there, on the one hand, manifesting in gender chaos, which we would never think that we would struggle with, and yet at the same time, perhaps, as Christians, we're manifesting the same kind of uh, idolatry of self in, in our churches. Um, and maybe even this issue with COVID has maybe put some of that on, on display just in terms of what we demand individually to be reflected in, in the church and in our theology and in our worship. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, well, I think I'll uh, bracket out the COVID side of there because I don't want to alienate 30% <laughs> of whoever's listening. Good <laughs> thought, yes. Uh, yeah, I, I do think you're making a good point there because uh, there's a sense in which, uh, and I say this in the book a number of occasions, we're all expressive individuals now. If, if mm. transgenderism is, is the most blatant expression of expressive individualism, yeah. you know, that somebody acting out outwardly that which they feel they are inwardly, mm -hmm. since which we're all expressive, individuals. I mean, you choose to be in the PCA. I choose to be in the OPC. We choose to identify right. ourselves. Some people choose to be Christians. Some choose to be Buddhists. Some choose mm -hmm. to be nuns. Uh, 
we religion is a choice now mm -hmm. uh, humanly speaking so religion itself is a function of expressive individualism and, and this is part of the problem we face in that it's 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 the water we swim in it's the air that we mm -hmm. breathe to I'm, spir I'm spiritual not religious yeah i think there are ways that we can think about mitigating mm -hmm. this effect in our lives and one of them is you know, when you join a church and you take a membership vows take the membership vows seriously right. so that uh you know, if, if, if the minister wears a tie that you take offense at, or, or in your case, Todd, presumably doesn't wear a tie, you know, uh, <laughs> right. that doesn't mean that you just up sticks and get a church down the mm -hmm. road. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we need to take, you know, if, if I could say the, the revolution against expressive individualism for a Christian starts with taking their local church commitment seriously, starts with taking their vows seriously. Now, that is emphatically not to say that there aren't, on occasion, good reasons why an individual might leave the church where they have committed themselves. But if we're honest with ourselves, my, my guess is that 90% of the time, the reasons people leave church are trivial and don't rise yeah. to the level of an important gospel issue. Mm -hmm. They're often matters of personal offense or personal taste. Right. And, you know, it's, it's a small thing, but it's one little blow against expressive individualism. Mm -hmm. Think I've submitted myself to the local elders. Uh, now, that's not an absolute submission. So if they tell me to hand over all my money to them, I've got to do it or something like that. Right. But it is a genuine submission. And I am submitting my will to theirs in the assumption that they are the ones who are placed in authority by God over me. And I think, you know, taking our membership vows seriously in that context is one small blow against expressive right. individualist culture. The idea that, you know, church is, is one consumer choice. I remember a few years ago, uh, you know, hearing the phrase, I'm church shopping. Yeah. which was both A, an abomination, but B, mm -hmm. very emblematic of the culture in which we now live. Right. You know, the church is just one other convenience that I can take or leave or, or choose. Yeah. So and these things all speak of that same metaphysical culture where we're taught that the individual is king. And you know, I think it's particularly strong in America where sure. rugged individualism, consumerism, both of which have good aspects. Again, I don't want to be say the whole thing is awful. And they both have really good aspects to them. But you know, when they're not kept in check, they're simply part of this broader culture of which the sexual revolution, transgenderism, etc., is one particularly blatant example at yeah. the moment. It's interesting. Uh, just this over the last three or four weeks, we've had several baptisms, baptisms of some covenant children and, and baptisms of several believers on a side note, been very encouraging that even during COVID and masking up and social distancing and all that kind of stuff, we we've welcomed in maybe nine or 10 new families uh, in membership. But, but the thing that struck me once again, as those new members were taking their vows and it's striking me all the more in, in these days and months is the nature of those vows sound increasingly alien in our culture, precisely because they are so intentionally, by those of us, we're so intentionally binding ourselves to other people, particularly when you get into taking vows about submitting um, to the, the, the spirituality of the elders. And again, you know, we explain that, what it means, what it doesn't mean, but, but it does mean something. 
when, when we talk about studying the purity and the peace of the church um, and submitting to its, to its discipline, where else do you hear that kind of thing except within the church? Because it's such a strange thing to submit your, to submit certain aspects of your individual yeah. freedom uh, is such a strange thing. And to bind yourself to a body where there is accountability yeah. and, and discipline, it is a strange, strange thing. Well, again, you, you really, you, to find an analogs, you'd have to look at, at uh, things that involve an acknowledgement of something greater or other than yourself. Mm-hmm. So marriage vows might be a right. similar thing. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, marriage has been so cheapened in, right. in contemporary society. No fault divorce, really. You know, I, there's a clear path to me between no fault divorce and transgenderism. And mm. the church has by and large swallowed no fault divorce. Right. So on, on what grounds do we then oppose transgenderism? Yeah. Um, yeah. I also think, you know, the army or the, the military service, of mm. course, where you pledge to obey those in command over you and you pledge a loyalty to presumably yeah. a nation uh, right. being in, in government. The, the president, mm. whether the president observes this or not, the president is, binds himself to uphold the constitution. Right. Uh, to to stand, you know, to place himself under the constitution. So there are these elements in society today. Sadly, of course, we see in in each of those marriage, the armed forces, and indeed in government, uh, they're kind of gone the way of, of membership vows. Sure. That you sure. know, they're kind of things where we gotta we gotta say these things to get ourselves into the club. Mm-hmm. But once we're in, we don't really have to take it. In fact, I'd I'd, I'd say the only place really we see. Um, binding vows taken really seriously is in our children's soccer teams where they, you know, play, uh, play every Sunday um, throughout the spring and summer. Uh, it, it seems that, that Christians know how to keep that commitment. And I yeah. mean, really commit. So, but that's another program. Maybe we'll unpack that. Okay. Now, so when, when we warn about what's going on in the sexual revolution right now, inevitably we're going to hear people say, Oh, you know, people have always been committing adultery and there's always yeah. been homosexuality and that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and, and you help make the point, and I think that this is an important point. Yes, we've always had sexual transgressors. Of course we have. The difference now is that uh, we no longer describe those things as transgressions. Now they are either normalized or even celebrated. Yeah. And that's the real difference, isn't it? Yeah, it was Philip Larkin in his poem, I think, makes the point, you know, sexual intercourse begins in 1963, wasn't it, with the Beatles, <laughs> just for the Beatles' first LP. I said, well, no, sexual intercourse didn't begin in 1963. Yeah. Uh, it's been going on time immemorial, and as long mm-hmm. as people have been having sex, they've been committing adultery, they've been breaking the rules. Uh, so, yes, it's, it's very clear that uh, you know, all kinds of sexual activities have been indulged in over the years. Uh, over the centuries. The interesting thing about today, as, as you said, is that the sexual revolution is not about inventing these things for the first time. Right. Nor, in fact, is it, is it really about merely expanding the range of sexual activities that are morally acceptable by society. Mm-hmm. The sexual revolution really is, is pretty much about the complete overthrowing and abolition of any kind of sexual taboos. Now, I have to say that there are a couple of sexual taboos that remain in place, even in modern Western society. Mm-hmm. Incest and pedophilia 
but they're hanging by a threat. They're that's really right. hanging by a thread. Now, that's not to say they will, in, they will eventually become legal, but it is to say that the grounds on which they are opposed these days, which is essentially consent, Mm-hmm. That's very shaky ground, particularly on the on the matter of incest. Uh, right. Consent is not going to protect society from incest. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the book, of course, I also look at the the concept of modesty. When you think about modesty, that's a good way of judging the sexual revolution mm-hmm. because you know there have been debates uh, for many many years all the way about modesty, and they typically you know revolved around. They often revolved actually around women's clothing. Yeah. What length of skirt is acceptable? You know, how mm. high above the, the ankle can the hem of a skirt go before it's immodest? Or, uh, you know, are bikinis acceptable over swimsuits or whatever? Mm. So, but those have been debates about the boundaries of modesty. The concept has been sort of agreed on. The yeah. question is... That modesty is good. Yeah, modesty is good. What are the things, what are the boundaries? Where do we set the boundaries for that? These days, modesty is ridiculous. Right. You know, you try and, make, try and make a case for modesty, uh, even in loosely considered, and you're regarded as a, a silly, reactionary, you're laughable. You know, I, I make the point in the book a couple of times that I've never seen the film The 40-Year-Old Virgin, but I know it's a comedy by the title. Because right. in today's society, virginity at 40, that's a ridiculous idea. Of course. That's a culturally ridiculous idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the sexual revolution, it is not about expansion of sexual morality. It's about the abolition of sexual morality, and therefore also about a complete transformation in the nature and purpose of sex. But that's right. uh, we're running out of time here, so that's probably one well, that, for, uh, for another conversation. We, we, will, we will begin to delve into that later. I, I, I want to throw one more at you though. And again, this is a long topic, but I I just want you to throw a couple of ideas at us here. What role does language play in the current sexual revolution, gender chaos? How how important is language in this? Uh, Language is very important. And we see that from the heated debates that take place around the policing of language today. Mm -hmm. And I think we're all aware that uh, language is, is very, very powerful. You know, if I use a racial slur, uh, mm-hmm. I'm doing something to the person I'm using it against. I'm putting right. them in their place. I'm denigrating them. I'm mm-hmm. making them less than human. So I think we, we're all aware that language is, is powerfully creative. I mean, God speaks and his language is creative. We're made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. We are the only creatures that have the ability to use language in a way analogous to God. Our language is not merely descriptive. It's also creative. It does something, uh, yeah. Uh, so language in general, very potent and powerful. One of the things, and again, I, you know, this would take too long to go into here, but sure. if, if you think about what I said about the psychologizing of the self, one of the adjuncts of the psychologizing of the self is that oppression becomes psychological. Mm. The damage that you can do to people becomes conceptualized in primarily psychological ways. So if I use a slur about you, that does real damage. It psychologically right. oppresses you, and therefore it damages your sense of self. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very serious. And that, of course, is why there's such a hoo-ha about pronouns relative to transgender people, for example. Why certain words used to describe homosexual people would be, you know, would be considered as bad as many of the racial epithets mm-hmm. that have long since been regarded as, 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 as disgusting and inappropriate for use in 
general or, or any right. kind of conversation. So language is very, very important, but yeah, we could do a whole podcast on, yeah. on the importance of language. That's, that is a central issue in the psychologized world we now live in. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, uh, to our listeners, this is a discussion we're going to continue to have. Um, again, the book that you need to be watching for that's going to come out a little bit later, um, later in, in November from Crossway, is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution by Carl Truman. And um, uh, we, we both know that Christians everywhere are feeling the pressure in terms of where they work, where they go to school, their social relationships. Uh, it seems like we are swimming in the waters of this current revolution, and it's having an impact. I, as a pastor, I have regular conversations with people who are anxious about their jobs, about being watched, about being overheard in conversations. So we know that this is very real, and we want to do a good job of equipping you, of, of helping you think through these things, and providing you with resources that will help you to do that. And um, uh, this book uh, by Carl is just one of the many contributions that we think are going to be helpful for that. So uh, be watching for its release and be watching for more discussions on this topic here at Mortification of Spin. We hope that you'll swing by our website, mortificationofspin.org, uh, to uh, look for uh, resources on this issue. Carl writes regularly about this topic and related topics, particularly at First Things. You'll want to be uh, watching that. And if you would like to make a contribution to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals so that they can continue to supply you with good content like this, you can do so uh, through the website. Well, we'll look forward to being with you next time. Thanks for joining us on Mortification of Spin. In olden days, a glimpse of stocking was looked on as something shocking. Now heaven knows anything goes. The world has gone mad today And good's bad today And black's white today And day's night today When most guys today That women prize today Are just silly gigolos So though I'm not a great romancer I know that you're bound to answer When I propose Anything goes. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. I just want you to know I'm wearing a sleeveless T-shirt. And Carl, this is not a tank top thing. This is a sleeveless. That's a distinction without a difference, man. And, I'd and like I, everybody to know I'm wearing a white button-down shirt and tie so, with a gold so, clip. So this is what I'm going to do, Carl. Next yeah. time we, we record, I'm going to wear an actual tank top, and you will see. Please don't. I can see the point. I can see the There is a difference, and you will yeah. prefer the sleeveless T-shirt. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah.
For generations, Christians have celebrated holidays and seasons with special songs. Prolific author and professor Leland Riken invites you to slow down and savor the well-turned phrases of your favorite hymns in his new book, 40 Favorite Hymns for the Christian Year. Now available from PNR Publishing, 40 Favorite Hymns for the Christian Year is a wonderfully devotional and poetic study featuring memorable hymns for the New Year, Good Friday, Easter, and Christmas. As an English professor, Leland provides historical background and literary analysis for each hymn, finishing each with a scripture reading. 40 Favorite Hymns for the Christian Year from PNR Publishing, your source for Christian books that provide clear, engaging, fresh, and insightful applications of Reformed theology to real life. Visit prpbooks.com.